You are listening to the Unlikely Felon podcast, episode number two. Real quick, today's show contains content about suicide and discussing the topic. If you or someone you know is having suicidal thoughts, please contact the toll-free National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Today is the start of your comeback. Welcome to the Unlikely Felon Livestream. This show is peppered with humor, entertains with inspiration, and presents real solutions to post-traumatic recovery. Here is your host, author, speaker, and mistake maker, W.C. Young. Welcome to the show. I'm W.C. How are you doing today? Wherever you're at, I hope you're, you're warm and safe. It's freezing where I'm at. No, well, actually, it's a balmy 10 degrees. It was, uh, I think, negative 6 the other day. And I always tell people when they're thinking about moving out to the, the western part of the country, the mountain areas, I always say, we get six months of this brutal cold weather and probably just to keep people away. But obviously, the secret's out, so they know better. The weather's phenomenal most of the time. But a little cold these days. I hope you're well. And thank you so much for, for joining me and for everybody who's been buying the book. It was number 28 in the caregiving category in the country on Amazon earlier this week. So I'm so very grateful for that. In, in today's cast, I'm going to talk a little bit about my dad's suicide and get into some issues about depression, uh, talk about what it meant and how it changed me. I think you're going to identify with some of these things. I'm not a psychologist or a doctor. And as I used to joke around, I, I used to play one on TV. Well, that's that's not true, but I've dealt with some some heavy stuff. And I'm sure many of you who are listening have done the same thing. And then we'll get into the story of Viktor Frankl. If you haven't read his powerful book, Man's Search for Meaning, you need to do it as soon as you can, or, well, at least after you read The Unlikely Felon first. I'm, I'm just kidding. I do quote uh, Viktor Frankl several times in the book. And then we'll finish with Mark Walden and Dr. Andrew Newberg. Who are they? I, I love these guys, if you haven't heard of them. They're acclaimed neuroscience researchers on spirituality and consciousness. I've been studying their work for about eight years. They literally combined mental science with spirituality, and they had a recent article in the Science of the Mind about new research out there on how positive visioning can actually hinder your success and your goal achievement, um, which was shocking to me. So first today, I'm sure many of you listening have, have lost someone close to you to suicide. Maybe it was a friend, a family member, a co-worker, maybe a partner, a lover, or God forbid, a child, and, and maybe even you've had suicidal thoughts. I've noticed lately, everywhere I go, people seem to, I don't know what it is, they have this lost or frustrated and patient look on their face, and probably from both the pandemic uh, and just the new life stresses, right? Technology, social media, there's so much coming at us all the time from every direction. I read that the new number of messages per day is like 6,000 to 10,000. You wonder why we're we're so overwhelmed. In fact, we were at a tournament for my daughter's competitive sports in Vegas this last weekend, and people just seemed disconnected. It wasn't just that they were looking at their phones. Actually, a lot of people were sitting at card tables or pushing slot machine buttons. It's, it's like people have become immune to even things like saying hello or using manners like please and thank you or thank you for holding the door. Excuse me. I just see people are distressed and they're uncomfortable. And they say the suicide rate went up for several 
different age groups during the last two years. And I don't think it's all about the pandemic. I'm going to get real vulnerable with you today and, and real authentic and do it right now. And the thing is, I was so very close to taking my own life, which I detail in the book. And now my dad's suicide was a little different, but it still had some, some of the same effects. And I talk about an exchange I had with one of the officers during the police search. This is in the book. And I wish this was made up or fiction, but it wasn't. The police had been at our house for about two or three hours. And I write, by late morning on most days, I'd be doing my sales calls, preparing content, practicing my presentations. I was surprised when the officer suddenly popped back into the room. So I'm sitting on the couch. He pops back in. He walked towards me fast like a fire drill was taking place, but stopped, turned and looked out, looked out the window as if he were pondering his life. Next, he turned around, looked directly at me and leaned toward me, acting like he empathized with me. Then he gave me a partial grin and bluntly said, your dad killed himself. What? I answered. You heard what I said. I didn't know if it was a statement or a question. Let me rephrase that. Did your dad kill himself? As he said it again, he made these odd movements, pointing his head towards the window. Then he was swinging it back towards me like he was on drugs. He continued, well, he did have terminal cancer, right? I said he did. He was really sick, stage four. Of course he was. I said this guy was being an asshole and I was completely out of line, but what could I do? And that's how I felt with the situation with my dad. And even though he and I, we always had a difficult relationship, he was incredibly smart. He was a member of Mensa, a great writer, a very talented person, but struggled with so many aspects of life. And But we didn't have any, he didn't have any of the interest in sports or the hobbies that I liked. And one June day, he decided to speed up the whole terminal cancer process. And if you've lost someone to cancer, you know what the, 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 how rough the last 30 to 90 days can be, especially hard for me. It was watching my sister deal with my dad's suicide. She was closer to him than I was, but still, when, when I drove up to check on him that day it happened, I, I found his hospice nurse holding my sister. My sister was barely standing. She was absolutely hysterical. She made this, this cry. Um, it, I, I can't get out of my head. And as I wrote in the book, it was a type of cry that comes out when a person's soul is overflowing. Her sobs were loud, uncontrollable. She had gone against my wishes to check on him. His nurse looked at me and said, he's gone. I said, he's what? She said, your dad is gone. And so, that's, so the interesting thing about suicide is that researchers, they've interviewed the few people who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and lived. It's hard to believe, but people have jumped and done that. And almost every one of them that they interviewed, their words are very similar, their answers. Almost all of them said, the second they lifted their foot off the ledge and they started to plunge down, they knew it wasn't the right decision instantly. It's amazing. But only 34 of about 1,400 uh, that jumped lived. And I remember seeing that research and I knew, I knew I had to work on me, my mental state, even though everything I'd built was gone and I didn't know what the next step would be in my journey. Um, I'm sure some of you get this. You've had something traumatic happen to you. And now what do you do? Where do you go? Back then, it seemed like for me, it would have been easier to just lose my life. Uh, I, I say in the book, I was going to try to call a lawyer and find out if my life insurance policy was correct. I had taken out a, a big million dollar policy and I wanted to make sure my family got it. I actually called and set an appointment. I didn't, I never, I never went. Um, 
and I, I didn't go through with it, thank God. I, I started to rebuild my life one step at a time, one day at a time. I got back to my goals, my soul, what made me come alive, but, but this time it was my priorities. I was setting them where it was my connection to spirit and family and body and then everything else. It's still a day-to-day -day battle, but I'm getting stronger. So please uh, talk to someone if, if you feel like you're at the end of your path, or you're struggling with depression. But, but here's the thing. There's always a way to find meaning. And there's always a reason to keep going. Which brings me to the story of Viktor Frankl, his book, Man's Search for Meaning, calmed me down when I was in work release. I was already freaking out. You can imagine I was a fish out of water. I didn't fit the typical profile of the guys in there. Now, Frankl believed that humans are motivated by something called a will to meaning, which is a desire to find meaning in life. He argued that life can have meaning even in the most miserable circumstances and that the motivation for living comes from finding that meaning. Now, I didn't have to go through any kind of the hell that Frankl did. He spent three years in four different concentration camps. And then following the war, he became the head of neurology department of the Vienna Polyclinic Hospital and established a private practice where he worked with patients until he retired about 1970. His book talks about how he survived. Frankl survived those camps, those hell holes, because he realized that there was an important task he personally needed to complete. He found meaning, and sometimes it's just one thing. Sometimes it's it's lots of things, but he found meaning in the completion of a manuscript that he'd been working on, which was his book. Now, I won't give away the story, because, uh, but, but what he did is he kept his dreams and goals alive during this incredible time, and what he did was amazing. You have to read it to believe it. His book had three main parts to it. First was, was of course, meaning, but he, rec he recognized and recommends three different courses of action. First, you get meaning through deeds. Second, the experience of values through some art, love, relationships, something deeper, and then suffering. That third one got me. I think about what Ken and I went through, through this journey and our suffering. And it was suffering for things that we had brought on ourselves in, in some cases, and for things we didn't bring on ourselves. But it made us value everything in our lives so much more. And then the second part Dr. Frankel covers is responsibility. He looked at a human's ability to respond to life and be responsible to life as a major factor in finding that meaning. He viewed it as, I quote, essence of existence. He said he believed that humans were not simply the product of their genes or upbringing or their environment. They had the ability to make decisions. They had the ability to take responsibility for their lives, not be a victim. So talk about someone who easily could have acted like he was a victim and believed he was a victim. And then last, he covered individuality. He connected the human individuality and each person's unique identity, what their purposes are, their passions. He encourages people to answer life and find one's unique meaning in it. When he was asked, how, how do you do this? Of course, <laughs> important question. He quotes Gotar, how can we learn to know ourselves? Never by ref reflection, let me say it again, never by reflection, but by action. Try to do your duty, and you will soon find out what you are. But what is your duty? The demands of each day. Quoting this, he points to each one of us doing our individual work and the manner in which we do it, that special way that we do it, whatever it is we're doing. And the way the book changed me was that Frankel's ability, he went through all this suffering, and, and yet he was able to hold on to that value. And I think that's that's what I kept thinking about. Hold on to, your, to that value. Keep going. Never stop. I knew even though so many things I had built 
and so many things I had tried had failed, and so many things I had built had were demolished. I had to keep going. Where are you at today? Are your dreams still alive? I don't care if you're 85, 25, 50. I want to ask you some questions. Are you in a dead-end job? Not doing a business you've always wanted to do. Are you in a business that's dead or should have been shut down? No one's told you. Not in a relationship you wanted. Are you making the decisions that are that are right for you? Are you making dumb decisions? Are you finding meaning, as Franco put it? What is your meaning in being here? I think the reality is that we can't be anything we want or do anything we want to do. I think I was wrong when I told my kids, which I did for many years, maybe I was wrong. Instead of saying you could be anything or do anything, I should have said they can be everything they are. They can reach whatever potential is theirs. Really quick, just want to take a, a break and tell you a funny story about Graham. She's one of the main characters in the book. And last week I talked about Gramps. And I told you I'd give them equal time. Graham and I had this really cool, unique grandma-grandson relationship, even though she had raised me almost like a son. I was always her grandson. She would say all the time, Willie, you're the best, and there's nothing you can't do. Don't ever let anyone tell you that you can't do something. I still, to this day, say those same words to my kids when I tuck them in at night or when I drop them off at school. And as I mentioned in the Dr. Frankel story, I don't tell them necessarily they can be anything. It's more of they can be everything that they are. But one funny story was a visit that Graham had to the hospital. Now, I know that Kay had lost her grandparents before she was old enough to know them. And Gramps and her had this great relationship. He he used all kinds of kind words, called her the just the golden child of our family. And I'll read from the book. Even though she was a grown woman, she acted like a little girl when she was in his presence, in Gramps' presence. Not immature, just protected, safe, secure. Gramps and Kay were always excited to see each other, and they could talk for hours, but sometimes their long conversations got them in trouble. One time, while Graham was in the operating room having some minor surgery, Kay kept Gramps' company in the hospital cafeteria. They got lost in conversation, talking about everything from too small, inappropriately sized farmer's overalls, which will <laughs> I think will be a good future story and a guess to what it was like sitting in a real model T automobile. So two and a half hours flew by when suddenly Kay heard an announcement over the hospital intercom. Gramps, is that your name coming over the sound system? She asked. What, honey? Gramps, I think they just said your name over the loudspeaker. Oh, geez. Oh, no. Gramps looked like he was getting pulled over by the police. Gramps' procedure had ended an hour before. So they hurried to a room as fast as a 90-year-old man could move. They turned the corner to see Graham sitting in her hospital bed, arms crossed, and a pissed-off look on her face. Dad, where have you been? Kay and Gramps looked at each other, both trying to hide their chuckles. Graham yelled, this isn't funny. Where the hell have you been, Dad? Now keep in mind, the only woman in the world that Graham would let Gramps hang out with was Kay. Graham had this extreme level of jealousy. It was something... I'd never seen before. It included everybody from the doctors, nurses, lawyers, grocery clerks, insurance agents, ministers, flight attendants. It was nuts. She was jealous of everybody except for Kay. But I love to tell stories about her. One minute she could help you in a bar fight. She'd be right there backing you up. And the next minute she was yelling at you because she was pissed off 
because you didn't answer a question right or you didn't like her stale candy that she sent home with you. Lastly, today, I want to get into the work of Walt Walden and Dr. Andrew. Did you ever see the video or read the book, The Secret? Rhonda Byrne produced it. I watched it when it first came out. Now, the point of The Secret was that visualizing what you want is all you need to do to turn into reality. And I remember my first vision board, which I, I think I got the idea from the video, but Dr. Newberg and Walden suggest there is not one study supporting the theory that if you positively think about something or visualize it, you'll achieve your goals. The studies do show these types of exercises help with building self-esteem, your confidence, and they point to the work of Gabrielle Otingen. So I looked her up. She has a site called whoopmylife.org, which is W-O-O-P, mylife.org, where she talks about uh, about 20 years of research she's done on creating methods that have shown to help the effectiveness of of all kinds of studies with people of all ages and many areas of their life when it comes to creating goals and accomplishing things. And what her research discovered, which I quote from the Walden Newberg article, if a person holds an image of a negative future along with a positive expectation, their anxiety went down, make it easier to succeed. When the expectations are low, people postpone or abandon their wishes. But when expectations of success are high, people more fully commit to pursuing the goals. Now, Otingen's work showed that positive thinking in the form of visualizing or fantasizing about achieving an idolized future predicts less, not more, effort and success, and more, not less, depressive symptoms over time. Now, that was me. I was visualizing all these big goals, becoming a billionaire, being perfect, the perfect husband, father, political leader, whatever it was, yet I was feeling, feeling miserable in the process. I had imagined the success so much that my brain, I think my brain already thought I achieved these big goals. And so I found myself anxious. I found myself taking risks and making decisions that got me in trouble. Now, Walden and, and Newberg noted that one study in particular was on weight loss, and it showed that the more a person visualized having the ideal weight or look, the less weight they actually lost. So what's the conclusion to the research and the studies I'm talking about? Go ahead and throw out your vision board. Never fantasize about your ideal life. No, no, <laughs> that's, that's not it. You want to vis visualize your goal with the expected outcome, but now comes the change, right? So you, you visualize the goal what's going to be the outcome, but now you visualize the obstacles to achieving the goals, and you map out a step-by-step -step plan to achieve that goal or goals. The research highlighted that if you have an accountability partner, you're even more likely to succeed. So Walt Walden and Newberg, they have this great exercise, and it, they have put it in the magazine. Here's what you do. It doesn't take long. Write down one specific goal you want to achieve today. Keep it simple. Visualize what it feels like to achieve the goal. Now the key part. So you've, you've visualized what it feels like to achieve it. You want to write down one obstacle that's going to stop you or potentially stop you. And then visualize what that obstacle is and how you feel as it's interfering with you. Now don't let the negative emotions come into it. Just observe the obstacle without judgment. Once you feel that obstacle, or it could be obstacles, write down two or three ways that you can overcome the obstacle and visualize yourself doing this, making it happen. This is what I did while writing the book. 
the way this lowers depression and anxiety for me is I realized what my true big goals were, which ones were not realistic, or I couldn't find a way around the obstacles. So I found my meaning, and as Dr. Frankel pointed out, it carried me through some rough times. We all go through some type of emotional trauma, and it can often lead to suicide or depression or other uncomfortable feelings. Remember, there's always a reason to come back and fight another day. And in the end, just fantasizing about your life and what it should be like isn't the answer. The research shows that understanding your obstacles and then having a step-by-step plan to overcome those obstacles is the key. That's why today starts your personal comeback. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope today was good for you. And please, I love the feedback. Thank you for the emails. And when you get a chance, pick up a copy of The Unlikely Felon. You can get it, the digital version right now, or pre-order the paperback. I believe it comes out March 7th. This is W.C. Young, and Episode 2 is in the books. Goodbye for now. If you enjoyed this cast, you must check out the website unlikelyfelon.com. You can buy WC's new book, sign up for the newsletter, and see his speaking engagement schedule.